Man, I'll tell you what, it's good to be back with our church home. And if you're new with us, my name is Johnny Pereira. I'm the senior pastor here and so glad to be ministering the word to you today. As we continue our series, The God Who Builds, here's how we've defined that phrase. If it's your first time with us, that God is faithful to remember and act upon his promises to build his people and his church for his glory. And we've been looking at that as we've walked through the pages and the verses of this book of Nehemiah. We've been looking and seeing that reality and how that was true with what God did with Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem. And that is true for you and I. And so I thought, as I thought about this week and what we're going to look at in Nehemiah chapter 6, I thought of just growing up in the Pereira household, in my family's household. There's six boys that were in our household. So I'm the oldest of six brothers. And if there's one set or series of movies that we loved more than anything else in the 80s, it was this series of movies. Rocky movies. Can I get an amen? Any ladies like that? Just curious. Look at that. All right. Kudos. All three of you. Awesome. We absolutely loved the series of Rocky movies. And even the ones that have come out fairly within the last five years, I had to go and watch it because that's just, I'm just, it's one of those things and if you're a Rocky fan, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you can be flipping through the channels, and it doesn't matter if you've seen a Rocky movie 25 times, you got to stop and just watch a little bit of it, right? And so our family, our my brothers and I, we absolutely loved Rocky movies. You say, how much? Say, how much? This much. We would actually make our own Rocky movies. That's how much we loved it. So we would take a VHS, if you're under, like, 25 years old, you don't even know what that is. But we would take a VHS recorder and we would make our own Rocky movies. So one of my brothers, who's the second oldest to me, he's, he's kind of the, the, the guy who likes to write scripts, loves that kind of artsy stuff. And so he would literally write scripts based off of the plot lines of the Rocky movies. We might change them up a bit. And here's what would happen. So I would always play the villain because I'm the oldest. So I would always play the one that seemed like could never be undefeated. And so my, my second brother, who's under me, or other brothers, would play Rocky. They would play the underdog. And here's what that would look like. So my dad would be the video, the video camera guy, and he would also be the boxing announcer. So he would do play-by-play -play, um, for the videos that we would make. Here's what my mom would do. She was the costume designer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I said that right. Like she literally made us those Rocky shorts with the flag. I know some of you are just hoping I put up a picture. I'm not doing that. <laughs> just put that out of your mind right now. You're not seeing a picture of me in Rocky shorts. Just sorry. I don't love you that much. And so she would make, so she was the costume designer. Here's what else she would do. She would run the music. Yeah, we would literally have the soundtracks of the Rocky movies. I mean, we went all out. So here's what we would do. We would, we would, my brother would write these scripts, and I would say, all right, I'm going to play the villain, and yes, I'll take the fall in this round. Here's what we use for boxing gloves. Oven mitts, right? Right, what else do you use? And so we would use oven mitts, and here's what would happen. We get in about the fifth or sixth round as we're filming this epic movie, and, we would, and I was always supposed to take the fall. Now here's a rule that we had. You could do all the body shots that you wanted, but here's the one thing you couldn't do. You couldn't hit in the face. It's one thing you couldn't do. So here's what would happen. You get to the fifth or sixth round, and I was supposed to take the fall. And if you watch these videos, which you won't, but if you watch them, you would always hear my brother start to say, you're supposed to go down, you're supposed to go down. And here's what I would do because I'm the oldest brother. I'd get to the point where I'm like, I ain't going down. I'm not losing. And so what would turn out to be body shots and stuff, it would always end where one of my younger brothers would throw a haymaker and try to hit me in the face. And then it would be all hold, no holds barred. You'd always see the camera drop and my mom run in to break things up. So when all of us get together, you know what we watch? Oh, you better believe it. Not that Rocky. We watch our own movies and just die laughing. Here's why I share that story. Because we love an underdog. I mean, isn't that in essence what those Rocky movies are? You have this person who 
shouldn't have a shot and is the underdog and against all odds and he faces immeasurably odds in every single movie. You know how it's going to end. You know what the plot line is going to be. But you still watch. Why? Because you love the underdog. Some of you who are sports people, that's why you love March Madness because you're hoping for the underdog to upset the person that is favored. And that's all great. But here's what I want you to understand if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today. Here's what I want you to understand. God is not the underdog. Say that to the person next to you. God's not the underdog. He's not. And so often we view Him like that, don't we? We look at the circumstances. We look at different things in our life. We look at opposition. And that's what we're going to look at again today. And we look at things and we think to ourselves, this is so big, God's the underdog. Listen, God's not the underdog. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. He never changes. God is not the underdog. God is always the victor. He's always the victor. And so here's the idea that I want to give you right now before we even get into Nehemiah 6 and see this idea in the pages of this chapter. It's this idea. That God's strength in you defeats the enemy's snares against you. That God's strength in you defeats the enemy's snares against you. And what I want to do before we even get into Nehemiah 6 is I want us to read some passages of Scripture that will be on the screen. I want us to read them out loud together that remind us of the strength that God makes available to you and me if we're a follower of Jesus Christ. So I want you to start. You ready? Let's say it out loud. Psalm 37, 39. Say it with me. He is their strength in time of trouble. Psalm 138, 3. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Matthew 19.26 With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ephesians 6.10 Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Romans 8.31 If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen to me. God's strength in you defeats the enemy's snares against you. Your life. And so if that is our reality this morning, then I think the first question that we have to ask ourselves is this. What are the enemy's snares against my life? What are the enemy's snares against your life? And let me just say this. In chapter 4, we looked at opposition that was pretty blatant. Right? You remember chapter 4? You had the taunting of the people looking at the people of Jerusalem building these walls. And remember what they said? Man, that wall's so weak. If a fox jumped on it, it would tear it down. So you had the opposition manifesting itself with taunts, with ridicule. You also, if you remember, had threats. Remember, the people were saying, the surrounding tribes were saying, we're going to come and we're going to fight against you, children of Jerusalem, so this wall isn't built. There were threats. There were taunts. And remember, there was also critical talk from even people that were in Judah saying, don't continue to do this. That was opposition that we saw in chapter 4. But the opposition that we're going to see in chapter 6 is different. See, it's subtle. Subtle. And what's different about this opposition than what we see in chapter 4 is in chapter 4, it was directed at all the people in Jerusalem who had committed to themselves to build the wall. But in chapter 6, we see a difference. Not only is it subtle, but it's also directed strictly at Nehemiah, which I find interesting. So let's look at verse 1 of Nehemiah 6. It says, now when Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. So in other words, what Nehemiah is saying is, is we've totally built the walls to the height that they're going to be. They're strong, they're built. The only thing left to build or to set in place is the doors 
in the gates. Look at verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. Now, we're going to refer to this plain a lot in this message. So here's how I want you to read it when I say it or to say it. You ready for this? You want to say in the plain of, oh no, oh no. All right, so just told you what you need to do. Now I'm going to give you a chance to follow through. You ready for this? I'm going to read verse 2 again. Sam Ballad and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of, oh no. That's right, good job. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. Four times they asked Nehemiah, Hey, Nehemiah, come down to the plain of, Oh no, let's talk. Let's talk about the walls. Four times they asked Nehemiah to do this. And it says that he answered them, the same way every time. You know what he said? He said no to oh no. Here's the first first way that the enemy sets a snare against our life. Here's the first way. Distractions. Distractions. See, I made reference to this when we just read these verses in verses 1-4. through Here's the problem with Nehemiah going down to meet with these guys. The job wasn't completely done. It was almost done, but it wasn't completely done. And Nehemiah understood that if I leave and I go down to meet with these individuals, that the people inside of these walls are still vulnerable. That Jerusalem is still vulnerable. Because yes, the walls are set, but the doors have not been set in the gates. They're still vulnerable. It's interesting when you look at where the plain of Ono is to where they were building the wall, that it would have taken Nehemiah to take a day, a day's trip, to go and to talk with these individuals, Sam Ballad and Geshem. It would have taken a day to go there. Then it would have taken a, a day to return, and not to mention the day to talk. Nehemiah understood, I don't have three days to waste. If I leave, the people are vulnerable. I think distractions are one of the most dangerous snares of the enemy. You know why? Because they're subtle. They're subtle. They're subtle. See, we can, we can mention big, massive, like, types of sins that we want to avoid. And I think, I think it's interesting that, that we think of these massive sins, and, and I'm not even going to take time to try to mention of them, but, but, but we could, we can mention many of them. And here's what I've found in the years of ministry that God has given me, is that nobody all of a sudden says one day, I want to blow up my life today. I want to throw my life in the ditch today. You know how we get there? Distractions. Distractions. They're one of the most subtle types of snares that the enemy has. And they leave us vulnerable in our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with others. And here's one of the greatest indicators whether or not I've allowed myself to be ensnared by distractions. How I use my time. How I use my time. You know, God's given us a set of priorities. And if you've been a follower of Christ for any time, I'm probably not going to share with you something new. But I'm not going to take anything for granted. That our priorities ought to be this. My relationship with God. If I'm married, then my relationship with my spouse. If I have children, then my relationship with my family. And then whatever I do is a job. Those should be the priorities. And that's not something that I made up. You look at the Scriptures in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments that are mentioned in Exodus 20. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. What is God getting at? That I am to be number one on your priority list. That you should have nothing in front of Me that would be a God, lowercase g, that would supplant where I should rightfully be, uppercase g. I mean, that's what 
He also says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That in my relationship with God, how I use my time reveals whether or not He's first and foremost in my life. What about my relationship with my spouse? Genesis 2.24 says what? A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and be one flesh. That, when, that, that as I look at my relationship with my wife Lori, that we are not two people, we're one in God's eyes. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, says what? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Which is interesting. Nobody ever taught me to love myself. So what is Paul saying there in Ephesians chapter 5? That my wife ought to be a priority in my life. Next to God. God being first. My spouse being second. And then what? My relationship with my kids. My family. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy 6-7, that after Moses says, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, then he says, You also need to impress these things on your children. So I look at my life and I say, well, how am I using my time? Is God number one? Is my spouse number two? And am I investing and spending time and imparting what I should know and what I'm gleaning from my relationship with God to my kids? Am I actually taking time to do that? Or am I allowing what should be fourth place, my job, to supersede all of that? Am I allowing my relationship with my spouse to be my idol and, and to override my relationship with God? Am I allowing my kids and the activities that they're involved in to override my relationship with God or my relationship with, with, with my spouse? See, here's the reality. If those priorities are not in line and I'm giving my time to match those priorities that God has ordained in His Word, I can tell you right now, I'm being distracted. And I'm vulnerable for attack. Nehemiah says, I'm not spending my time away from the task and the order in which God has given that to me. Because if I go down there to meet with you, I am taking time away from what I know God has called me to do and now putting it into something else. And it's going to leave the people who God has entrusted to my care vulnerable. Distractions. Distractions. Here's the second thing. Look at verses 5-9. through nine. We're going to see the second one in this section of Scripture. It says, in the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. So, what they've tried already for four times didn't work, so now Sanballat tries this tactic. He says, hey, I have an open letter. In other words, what that meant is, is as that letter traveled from place to place to place until it gets to Nehemiah, that letter was re read in every province and every town out loud so that everybody could hear what was in that letter. So it traveled from Samaria to Jerusalem. And everybody would have known what was in that letter by the time it got to Nehemiah. Look at verse 6. In it was written this. So what was in the letter? Here's what it was. Here's the content. It was reported among, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. Now let me just stop there. We're going to have a little commercial break. You ready for this? Don't ever be a person that spreads content that starts with it's reported it's reported nothing tears a church apart quicker than that stuff don't do it don't do it don't fall into that tactic that's what they're playing with nehemiah look here's what the letter also says and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in jerusalem so this letter says that hey everybody nehemiah wants to be king and he's actually set up prophets to proclaim this as the case that there is a king in Judah and now the king who's he speaking of Artaxerxes now the king will hear of these reports so now come let us take counsel together so what Sam Ballot was threatening with is to say hey this is what was just read 
And if you don't come to meet with me, I'm going to endorse it as reality to the king. Now look at Nehemiah's response. So then I sent to him saying, no such things as you no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Like, I just love that phrase that Nehemiah uses. For they all, look at this, he knows the motive. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But look at Nehemiah's response. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Here's a second snare of the enemy. Not just distractions, fear of man. Fear of man. The second distraction. Nehemiah, Nehemiah could have easily slipped into a fear of man saying, what if everybody believes these rumors to be true? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to the people of Jerusalem? What's going to happen to these walls? And he could have easily succumbed to that fear of man. But here's what he does. He says, God, listen, I know I'm susceptible to that. He says, strengthen my hands for the work. See, the fear of man is rooted in this question. What will others think or say of me. Think about it in your own life. See, every one of us are vulnerable to the fear of man. Yes, some of us may be more than others, but I don't believe anyone's immune to that. And when I really look at the fear of man in my life, it's really rooted in this question, what will others think or say of me? Because I want to be liked I want to be approved of by others. I want people to see me in a good light. And whenever that's threatened, I'm faced with a decision. And am I going to be motivated by the fear of man or motivated by something else that we'll get to soon? Because when I'm, when I'm ensnared by the fear of man, I am a slave to the opinion of others. And the fear of man is a monster that is constantly fed but never satisfied. Fear of man. Distractions. Here's the third thing. Look at verses 10 through 14. We'll see the third thing in this in these verses. It says, Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, so this Shemaiah is, is a prophet. He's regarded as a prophet. It says, Who was confined at home? He said, Let us meet together in the house of God with in the temple. Now, here's what you can't see in the English. Because there would have been no problem for Nehemiah to go meet Shemaiah in the temple. Been no problem at all. But that word temple actually has the idea of holy place. Which if you look at Numbers 18.7, and we don't have time to get there, that it clearly communicates that only the priests were able to go into the holy place. And only a high priest was able to go into the holy of holies or the most holy place. So when Shemaiah asked Nehemiah, Nehemiah, why don't you come and, and we'll hide in the temple? What he's really saying is, come, let's hide in the holy place. Now look, let's continue reading. It says, let us close the door of the temple. So why does he want Nehemiah to come? Look at what it says. For they are coming to kill you. And then he says, they are coming to kill you by night. So that's written in such a way that literally what Shemaiah is doing is he's acting as though he's received revelation from the Lord. Like, this is what, I've heard a word from the Lord, and here it is. They're not just coming to kill you, but they're coming to kill you tonight. Now look at verse 11. Look at Nehemiah's response. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Here's what he's saying. Wait a minute. Shemaiah, you're telling me to do something that I know God's word tells me not to do. So what Nehemiah is saying here is there's a problem there. Because if you were really speaking from God, then you would not be telling me to do something that contradicts what God already said. So look at verse 12. He says, and I understood. And I saw that God had not sent him, but had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way, and look at this, and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nanodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So evidently that tells me that Shemaiah wasn't the only one in this. Here's a third snare of the enemy. Not just distractions, 
Not just the fear of man. Here's the third snare that the enemy wants to entrap you with. Deception. Deception. You know what I find interesting is that the enemy's deception always has an element of truth. It always has an element of truth. But it has a little bit of truth mixed with a whole lot of narcissism. Here's what I mean by that. That whenever I'm deceived by the enemy, he's always going to use a little bit of truth, but he's going to use a whole lot of this phrase, it's all about me. Right? Think about it in your own life when you've been tempted to go contrary to God's Word. What's that phrase that always is in your mind? Or maybe maybe not this exact phrase, but the content of it. Well, I know that I need. I want to be happy. Like that's a phrase that's oftentimes used, right? A little bit of truth, but then I'm like, but wait a minute. I know God's word says this. At the same time, I, I know I, I know it's my right to be happy. The the enemy loves to just use a little bit of truth with a whole lot of it's all about me. Here's why I say that. You go all the way back to Genesis 3 and look at how Satan, the enemy, tempted Eve. He says, Eve, you you can't eat of that fruit. And here's why. Because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. That was the element of truth. Because we know on this side of the story that their eyes were opened and they realized that now they understood what sin was. That was the element of truth. Here's the lie. Here's the mixture of the all about me. He says, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And he fell for it. Why? Because the enemy planted a seed in her mind that God wasn't good. Think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 when he's tempted by Satan. One of the temptations is Satan takes Jesus to a pinnacle of a mountain and says to Jesus, hey, I want you to throw yourself down because in Psalm 91 it says that your angels will not let you be harmed. The enemy even uses Scripture. And what does Jesus say? I also know what it says and he uses Deuteronomy 6.16 and he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. What was the problem with that? If Jesus would have done that, why would he have sinned? Because he would have been consumed with proving to others who he was. It would have been about him. Deception always has a little bit of truth, but it's mixed with a whole lot of all about me. And that is what the temptation was with Nehemiah. Nehemiah, come. Let's go into the holy place. Let's go hide. They're coming to come and kill you tonight. Nehemiah could have easily said, well, I don't want to lose my life and forgotten about the responsibility that he had to protect the people that God had entrusted to his care. Deception. Deception. Now, if we stopped right there, you know what every one of you should say if we close the message right there? That was a crummy message. Because we haven't gotten to how do we experience God's strength in our life against the snares of the enemy? Because what was the idea that we gave? God's strength in you defeats the enemy's snares against you. So let's get to, in this passage of Scripture, how do I experience God's strength in my life in the midst of the enemy's snares? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I'm going to give you four things. Here's the first one. Say no to the distractions. Say no When the enemy wants you to go to the plane of, oh no, say no to the distractions. What I love about Nehemiah is he was single-minded. Nothing could throw him off what God had already called him to do. I wonder how many of us, we passed out these cards at the beginning of this series. And what I asked you to do is I asked you to write down what you believe God wanted to build in you or through you. And I know many of you took the opportunity to write those things down. Maybe it was God answering something in the sense of a miracle that you were asking God to do health-wise or relationship-wise or whatever. Maybe it was something that you believed that God was calling you to do. Maybe it was a change in job or vocation. I don't know. what. Maybe it was, maybe it was your relationship with your spouse and saying, man, we've torn down this, God. We're wanting, to, we're wanting to see you rebuild this. I don't know what you wrote down, but I wonder how many of us have allowed distractions 
to keep us from being committed to get on our face every day alone with God, to pray out loud with this list on our knees, believing that God is working. And we've gotten caught up in the distractions, and instead of saying no to those distractions, we've fallen in the trap of saying yes. We've gotten caught off course. And maybe this card, when you open up your Bible and you see that card, maybe it brings conviction rather than encouragement because you're like, oh man, I haven't given my time to this. First way that we experience God's strength in our life in the midst of the enemy's snares is to say no to the distractions. We need to learn to say no. Turn to the person next to you and simply say this, no. See, some of you are like, man, I love that. All right, turn to the person and say it again. No. Here's the thing. So many of us, we don't have a problem saying no. The problem is, is we say no to the right things and yes to the wrong things. And we're distracted this morning. We've allowed ourselves to be ensnared by that subtle snare of the enemy called distractions. So in what circumstances should I say no? Well, let me give you three. Here's the first one. When I'm facing temptation. When I'm facing temptation. When I'm being tempted to sin. Because look at what it says in verse 2. Nehemiah says, hey, listen, I didn't go down to the plane of, oh no. I said no to, oh no. Why? Because I knew they intended to do me harm. And you've heard me say this in the previous weeks, but I'm going to say it again. We have to embrace the reality that the enemy intends to do us harm. He wants to hijack your relationship with God. He doesn't want you to give time to that, so he's going to throw every distraction your way to get you to say, I don't have time to do that, but I got time to binge on Netflix, but I've got time to go and do all my hobbies. I got all the time in the world to do those things, and we go on and on by each one of those priorities that I gave, whether it's God, spouse, family, or job. We could go on. And what we need to say to ourselves is, is, wait a minute, I need to understand that the enemy intends to do me harm. So what has God called me to do? And let me look at the things that contradict that. I'm going to say no to temptation. I'm going to believe what it says in 1 Corinthians 10.13. That no temptation is taking you, but such as is common to man. That's the beautiful thing about being involved in a life group, that when, you, when ladies get together with ladies and guys get together with guys and you're having that mutual ministry with one another, you start finding out, wait a minute, there's other people that are tempted with the same things I am. And you start to see that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is true. There's no temptation taking you, but such as it's common to man. But here's the thing, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will let the temptation always make a way to escape that you and I may be able to bear it. You know what oftentimes is the way to escape? us learning to say no no when I'm faced with temptation here's the second thing when I'm being asked to compromise God's word that's when I ought to say no when I'm being asked to compromise God's word see Nehemiah says hey listen I'm not going down no I'm saying no to the plane of oh no why because I understand I am his words God's words not mine look at verse beginning of verse 3 I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Here's what I believe is the greatest threat to every believer. It's this lie. It's the lie that says that God's Word is not the ultimate authority in your life. That's the most dangerous lie you can believe. That God's Word is not the ultimate authority in my life. Because how... Whether or not I believe that lie or not is going to affect whether or not I'm going to say, I'm going to say no when I'm being tempted to compromise God's Word. Because Nehemiah says, no, I know what God told me. He told me to finish this job. I know what He told me. And I'm saying, I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work. Let me tell you something. Every day you get on your knees and you pray over this card of what you're believing God desires to build in and through your life, you're doing a great work. Don't stop believing. God is working. God is building. Here's the third circumstance when we say no. 
when a lesser good threatens to undermine the higher good. We see that at the end of verse 3, right? He says, why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? Hear me on this. God is never going to ask you to do something that He doesn't intend for you to finish. You hear that? God is never going to ask you or ask me to do something that He also doesn't intend me to finish. God desires for every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ to say the words of Paul at the end of their life, I've finished my race. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've committed myself to experience God's strength in my life against the snares of the enemy. And I'm not going to compromise the higher good for a lesser good. What's the second way we experience God's strength in our life? Not only learn to say no to the distractions. Here's the second thing. Allow the fear of God to shrink your fear of man. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on the fear of God. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But look at verses 8 and 9. Remember, they, they, Sanballat says, Hey, Nehemiah, I've written this open letter. Everybody knows your intentions. Everybody knows that, that really it's all about you and you want to make yourself king and you even hire people to proclaim it there in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, if you don't come and talk with me, I'm going to tell the king on you. Fear of man. What are people going to think? What are people going to say? And I love what Nehemiah does. He goes right back to that fear of God, that worshipful submission. God, I understand who you are. I understand what you've called me to do. God, I'm going to be committed to who you are in my life and what you've called me to do in my what you've called me to do in and through my life. And he goes to God and he says, God, I need you to strengthen my hands because I understand who you are and I understand how weak I am. I understand I can be susceptible to the fear of man. And we need to understand that God's strength will never be found in man's approval. It will never be found. God's strength will never be found in man's approval. Here's what we need to understand about ourselves. Is that I have a longing in my life for, for three main things. A longing to belong. A longing to be valued and a longing to be empowered. I mean, I want to belong. I want, I, I want to belong to someone, to something. And I, I, want, I want someone to give me value. I want to feel empowered that, that someone actually thinks enough of me that they would give me a responsibility and that they would empower me to do something. Every one of us have those three needs in our lives. And the danger is, is that when we look to people to fill those needs, we're dropping an anchor in our life into something that's always shifting. Because I'm looking for a person to ultimately give me a sense of belonging or a sense of value or a sense of empowerment. The reality is, is I'm placing into someone, I'm giving them a power that they can't live up to. And I'm going to find myself like a flag in the wind being waved back and forth because I'm constantly looking at the next person that can give me approval and give me belonging and give me value and give me a sense of empowerment and I'm going to be chained and imprisoned to that fear of man. But get this. When I understand, and some of us need to bring ourselves back to this because we are followers of Jesus Christ in this room. We have accepted the Gospel. That what we have in the Gospel meets every one of those needs. That that sense of belonging that I have that's actually God-given, God gave it so that it would draw me to realize as God opens my eyes that He is my heavenly Father. That He is a holy God who cannot tolerate sin. That He is a God of justice who has to demand a payment for sin. But He's also a loving God who sent Jesus Christ to live and die and be risen for my sin. And He loved me enough, as it says in Romans 8, that I can actually call God Abba, Daddy, Father, because of I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that now I have a relationship with a holy God. That gives me my sense of belonging. And if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, stop looking for your sense of belonging in people who can never ultimately satisfy it. 
Look at it in God. He's your Father. He's given you a sense of belonging. But what about value? I've been given value in Jesus Christ. That Romans 5, 8, that in the midst of my sin, that's when Christ loved me. That's when Christ died for me. That He left His home in heaven. That He put on human flesh and humbly came down and lived a perfect life for me. A life that you and I can't live. That He replaced His perfect life in place of my imperfect, sinful, ugly life. And He died on the cross for my sin, absorbing God's wrath, allowing me to be able to accept that payment on my behalf and he rose again three days later so that today if i place my faith and trust in jesus christ i can actually say with confidence god's not the underdog he's the victor why he's given me value stop looking for that in a person what about the empowerment i love what romans 8 also says in verse 11 the same power that raised jesus christ from the dead lives inside of every person who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. That means that every task that God has called me to, every trial that He allows me to walk through, every disappointment, every situation that maybe doesn't work out the way that I think it should, but I'm, I'm saying, wait a minute, God, I know You've given me the strength in my life to avoid the snares that want me to get to doubt that You're good and that you're gracious, and that you are building. I have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me that God has empowered me to the work that He's called me to do. That's where my anchor needs to drop. That's how I allow the fear of God to shrink the fear of man. What's the third way? We experience God's strength in our life in order to defeat the snares of the enemy. Here's the third thing. Use God's Word to expose the enemy's lies. Use God's Word to expose the enemy's lies. I mean, isn't that what Nehemiah did in verses 11-13? through 13? He took what this prophet was telling him and trying to deceive him with, and he said, wait a minute, let me take what you told me and let me hold it up to the lens of what I know God's Word says. And what I, when I do that, I'm able to see, and I'm able to see through the deception and see what's true from what's a lie. That's what Nehemiah does. He allows God's Word to expose the enemy's lies. So let me give you a couple things that I believe can prevent us from being deceived by the enemy. That we need to test everything against these two principles because I love what 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20 and 20, 21 and 22 say. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't quench God's strength in you. So what do I need to do? Test everything Hold what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. How do I do that? By testing everything. Test it against what? What? Here's the first principle. If you're not taking notes, you better get ready. Here's number one. God is never going to ask me to be unfaithful to the calling and responsibilities He's placed in my life. God's never going to be ask me, ask me to be unfaithful to the calling and responsibilities He's placed in my life. He's, remember, He's not going to call you to a work that He doesn't desire you to finish. I mean, that's what Nehemiah says. Look at the first part of verse 11. He says, such a man as I run away? That wasn't a prideful statement, but what he was saying was, is listen, I understand the platform that God's given me. God's called me to be a leader of these people, and if I run away, what's that going to communicate to everybody else? That would be me being unfaithful to what I know God has called me to do and the responsibilities that He's placed in my life. Here's the second principle that I need to test everything against. It's me understanding God is never going to contradict His written Word. Never. Say never. Never. God's never going to contradict His written Word. Look at what it says in the second part of verse 11. Nehemiah just doesn't say, so such a man as I run away. But he says, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. He says, I know what God's Word says. It says I'm not supposed to go in there. So now I know you're a fraud, Shemaiah. Man, if I want to keep myself from being deceived, I need to say to myself, wait a minute, this thought that's in my mind, this feeling that I'm feeling, this advice that I'm getting from, from someone else, I need to say, wait a minute, does that contradict God's Word? Because if it does, it's a snare of the enemy. I'm not being deceived. 
That's why I said earlier that one of the most dangerous lies that we can believe is that God's Word is not the ultimate authority in our life. Here's the last thing. Here's the last way that we experience God's strength in our life in the midst of the enemy's snares. Believe in the power of God's strength. You believe it? You believe in the power of God's strength in your life? Look at what it says in verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Like you ought to write next to that only God. Verse 16, and when all of our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. In other words, what that means is, is they started to lose confidence in their strength. May that be true of every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. That we say, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look to God for the strength in my life. And as I look to God as the strength in my life, more and more and more, you know what begins to happen? I lose, I have less confidence in what I can do, but my confidence in what God can do continues to grow. And look at what else it says. Look at how verse 16 ends. For they perceived, so this is people who don't even have a relationship with God. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Listen to me. God will not call you to something that you can do in your own strength. Why? Because He wants to call you to the things that you can only do in His strength so that you can be the canvas for His glory to be put on display. That's what happened. It's even people that didn't believe in who God was looked at that and said, I don't know if I have a relationship with God, but I know the people of Jerusalem didn't do that. That's my desire for this church. Is that when people look from the outside at this church, that they would look and say, only God could do that. That's my desire for your life. That when people look at your life, even if they don't have a relationship with God, that they would say, I know who He is. I know He's not perfect. I know she's not perfect. But only God could do that in His or her life. That happens when we believe in the power of God's strength. How many of you have been to the circus? Raise your hand. Okay, most of you. You know what I find the most amazing thing about the circus? is that if it's a good circus, it has a big old elephant, right? And what I find amazing when I go to the circus and you go into that tent, is that there's always, if it's a good circus, like I said, there's this massive elephant and he's being like restrained by this little peg with a rope around one of its massive legs. And I don't know if you've thought of this or not, but I always think of this. I'm like, holy cow. Like that elephant at any time has the power to rip that puny pig out of the ground and take everybody out, including the tent. And I look at that and I say to myself, why in the world doesn't that super powerful, massive creature who's being held by a puny pig with a rope around his massive leg, why doesn't he pull that thing up so that he can be free? You want to know why? Because he's always been tied to that rope. He doesn't think that he can break himself free because he's always been tied. See, when that elephant was a tiny little baby, they nailed a stake in the ground with a chain around that elephant's leg. And at the time, when that elephant tried to pull against that peg and against that chain, he couldn't break himself free. And over and over and over again, that baby elephant tried. But at some point in that elephant's life, it gave up. And even though that elephant has the power to pull himself off of that peg with not even a second thought, the, the elephant has gotten caught up in believing because something way back in the past that he doesn't have the strength. And I wonder if that's true of us today. Maybe there was a time when we didn't know God's Word as well as we do now. Or maybe there was a time before we were even a follower of Jesus Christ. And we prayed about something. And we said, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And God didn't work it out the way that we thought He should. 
now we sit here and we've heard plenty of messages in our life. We're involved in biblical community and a life group and all these different types of things. And, and you have gotten caught into thinking that God is the underdog. That God's strength isn't greater than the enemy snares in your life. And you've allowed yourself to be chained to something that you have the power to remove through the Holy Spirit. time to stop believing the lie it's time to start believing that god is victorious he always has been he always will be it's time to start reminding us of what we have in the gospel he's given us our sense of belonging he's given us our sense of value and he has empowered us through the same power that raised jesus christ from the dead so that we can be victorious in our life over deception over the fear of man over distractions in our life Don't shortchange God's strength in your life. Would you stand with me this morning and we're going to sing this last song. And as we sing this last song, maybe you need to do business with God and you need to say, God, would you forgive me for being deceived into thinking that your strength isn't as great as the enemy's snares that I'm facing right now. Maybe you are ensnared and you need to say, God, forgive me for saying yes to the distractions instead of no. God, forgive me for giving into the fear of man instead of the fear of God. God, forgive me for thinking that God's word's not the ultimate authority in my life. God, forgive me for disbelieving in your strength and allowing myself to be tied to something that you've given me the power to overcome. Because God's strength in my life always defeats the enemy's snares against my life. God, I pray that we would be a people here at Harvest Winston-Salem that would represent to those looking at us that you are doing a work in and through our lives that can only be attributed to your strength. God, that's our desire. And I pray for a person in this room that is doubted in your strength that today, God, you would open up their eyes afresh to who you are and to who you desire to be in their life. God, I pray for someone who's never placed their faith and trust in you that God, today, even as the song is sung, that they would confess and realize and say, God, forgive me of my sin. I place my faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done to satisfy that sense of belonging, to satisfy that sense of value, to satisfy that sense of empowerment. God, would you work in and through this place for your honor and your glory and all God's people said let's sing this song